Hello and welcome to another episode of Free Mississippi. I'm Douglas Carswell and our guest today is a science writer, a best-selling author and a member of the British House of Lords, Matt Ridley. Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Douglas, it's great to see you again. And uh, you're, Britain's loss is Mississippi's gain. Uh, I hope they realise what an incredible talent they've recruited. That's very kind of you. I am amazed by Mississippi. It is the most wonderful place on the planet. But like many places on the planet, it could probably do with a little bit more innovation. Um, and um, we, to try to make sure that Mississippi is more business-friendly and innovation-friendly, we launched something called the Mississippi Technology Institute last week. And the idea is that we try to make sure that public policy helps rather than hinders innovation here in Mississippi. And I can't think of anyone better to talk to us about this, given that your best-selling book, um, How Innovation Works, is full of interesting ideas about innovation. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I, I, I realised I'd been dancing around the topic of innovation in various previous books, and it was time I did a book just on innovation itself, and particularly stories. I thought it was terribly important to tell stories of how innovations came into our lives and see what themes emerged. And it was quite striking how often the same themes cropped up. What, first of all, what is innovation? I mean, it's different from invention. This was when I read your book, and I have to say it was my favourite book of 2020. Um, what is the difference between innovation and invention? What is innovation? Well, I think it's a very important distinction because I think we, we, we tend to blur the two uh, and invention is coming up with a new device uh, or a new uh, something or other, but innovation is making a new device that's affordable, reliable and available to people. And that is quite a different process often. It, it often requires a different mentality, a different type of person, much more of a sort of team effort. Um, and it's a hard slog. And you don't end up with a statue named after you. Uh, and, you know, you don't end up sort of famous in the way that inventors do. It's sometimes the same people who do both, but it isn't always. And I wanted to, I wanted to sort of pin down the, the, the kind of emergent, gradual, bottom up nature of this process of making new devices reliable and affordable and available because it's 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 it, it tends to get missed out of the story you know um james watt invents a steam engine when he watches a kettle boil and that's it you hear nothing about his long struggles with matthew bolton to make it work to make it reliable to make it not explode you know all these kind of things something that really struck me about innovation reading your book is the extent to which it's a team effort. We, we tend to kind of like this idea of a, a, a sort of a, a quirky eccentric working away in isolation in a laboratory who gets a flash of inspiration. That's not what happens at all, is it? No, I, I think this is one of the really big myths. Um, whenever you look at the stories of individuals who made extraordinary changes to the world, through inventing things, you always found they relayed, relied on others. They were either picking other people's brains or they were actually collaborating with others and it was a conversation going on between people to, to make things happen. Um, uh, so, you know, even a case like the Wright brothers, you know, where these two unknown bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, suddenly uh, invent powered flight, what they had done right, which others had done wrong, was they had picked the brains of people who were thinking about flight all over the world, uh, including a, a, a strange guy called Octave Chanute in Chicago, who was 
who was a sort of node in a network of flight thinking. Um, he was corresponding with people uh, all over the world. And there was, a, there was a brilliant Australian who had done a lot of experiments with box kites and other kinds of kites and gliders. So uh, they, they really weren't the Wright brothers relying just on their own genius. And the brilliant thing about that example is that there was uh, the opposite story going on just not very far away uh, in Washington DC, the head of the Smithsonian Institution, a guy called Samuel Langley, um, thought he could invent a powered airplane. And he was very, very clever, very, very well connected. So he didn't need anyone else. He was just gonna do it himself and he was gonna keep it secret until he unveiled it. Uh, and of course, uh, when he did, it flopped into the Potomac after 20 yards or 20 feet, I can't remember which, you know, but anyway, it, uh, the pilot had taken the precaution of wearing a cork-lined um, life jacket, so he didn't die or anything. Uh, and he, th this guy's Langley, it had a $25,000 grant from the US government, which was huge at the time. And as a result of that, the US government was allergic to flight and they wouldn't touch the Wright brothers for years afterwards because they said, oh, we don't believe in these people who say they can fly. So the, fact, the, the state backed project flopped, literally fell into the river. Quite literally. With the, yeah. Kind of the well connected, innovative trial and error amateurs, the Wright brothers got it off the ground. Yeah, and that's what partly what I'm trying to do in this book. I'm trying to democratize innovation. I'm trying to take it away from the elite and the posh people who were clever and went to universities and things and show that it's the tinkerers it's the it's the bicycle mechanics from ohio without degrees who, who make the world different i think i'm right in saying though that the wright brothers the key breakthrough was something to do with the the motor wasn't there an aluminium motor or, or someone did something different to make sure that it yes but but actually really there's years of experiments with gliders before that they got very, very good at, 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 at operating gliders and they, and they worked out crucial things like how you steer in the air, how do you turn, turn a corner in the air, you know, nobody thought of that before. And crucially, the, the, the curve in the aerofoil, you know, the, the wing has to, has to be a sort of downward curve, but if the ratio of height to, to length is wrong, it just doesn't work. Um, so that all of that kind of stuff. The engine came very late, they left it to the end. Um, they, they figured it would be quite easy to, to invent an engine right at the end. In fact, it wasn't very easy. And luckily, they had a guy working in their shop, in their bicycle shop, who turned out to be quite good at engines. And he designed, as you say, a very lightweight aluminium engine, uh, which was fantastic and, and probably essential to the whole project. But they left it to the end on the grounds that, well, all the engine had to do was produce power. It didn't have to produce the, the flying, which was the difficult bit. And there's a lovely image in, in uh, that I mentioned in my book um, from a much later period from uh, Google X, the Google Skunk Works, uh, where they talk about monkey first, always monkey first. What does this mean? Well, what it means is if you're gonna invent a monkey reading Shakespeare sitting on a pedestal, don't invent the pedestal first because that's easy. Invent the monkey first because that's difficult. <laughs> It's, you used the phrase when you were talking about the Wright brothers, you said, luckily, luckily they had the right guy in their workshop. Um, I mean, a, a posh word for luck is serendipity, but that, that is key to innovation, isn't it? Random chance. There's an enormous amount of serendipity, uh, as I discovered. People kept having to change their mind to go in one direction and then in another. The, the woman who invented Kevlar, um, you know, bulletproof vests and things, Stephanie Quallack, she was trying to invent one thing and she invented something completely different and thought that's useless. 
uh, and then it turned out to be rather useful. That's a very nice example. There are lots and lots of stories like that, of people stumbling on things uh, unexpectedly uh, and being open to it. You know, the secret is being open to changing your mind, being open to see that the, that the facts are taking you in a different direction. One of my favorite examples, actually, close to home for me, because I very nearly was there witnessing it, because I was talking to this guy in, in the months before he did it, and then... Um, he said he was very busy and couldn't talk to me, so I didn't talk to him for a few months. During that period, he went off and changed the world. A guy called Alec Jeffries in Leicester in England. Um, uh, he was an expert on uh, genomics, the genome, and what was going on inside DNA. And uh, he stumbled upon these repetitive sequences, which were so individual that they were different in every individual, but you could see the relatedness so you could work out who was whose parents and things like that, but you could also identify individuals. And he called them genetic fingerprints. And in 1985, the local police came to him and said, um, uh, can you help solve a case? We've, we've caught someone who's confessed to a murder, but we want to convict him of the second murder. And he's not confessing to that, even though it's a very similar murder. Um, can you prove that he did both? We've got samples from the scene and we've got samples from him. And he said, well, I'll have a go. And he came back and he said, well, I can tell you that the same person committed both crimes, but it wasn't the guy you've got in, in jail. Wow. And they said, what? And they said, well, I'm sorry. That's what I'll say in court if you bring me. So they, they had to abandon the case against this guy, go back to square one, and they went and blood tested 5,000 people in the local area. Uh, until And finally, one guy, they found no one. Then one guy uh, in a pub, was overheard telling a friend that he'd avoided the blood test because he thought the police were after him for something else. This was reported. They went and tested this guy, and he was the perpetrator of both crimes, both murders. That was the very first use of genetic fingerprinting. Now, the point about the serendipity point here is that nobody thought DNA science was going to end up being more use in forensics than it was in medicine, which it was for its first 10, 15 years. I'd, I'd love to hear the story, maybe not now, but just the about the, the police officer who had something about him that caused him to go to the scientist. Uh, That's know. a really good point. And I don't know the back, back story to that. Thank um, you for reminding me to go and find out. But it, I mean, it, it, it serves to this wider purpose about institutions that are open to innovation versus those, those that aren't. I mean, I, I, I guess, um, you know, throughout human history, you've had lots of people who've had good ideas, but whether or not people are are willing to take them up is another matter. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about that in a, in a, in a moment, but before we get there, I, mean, I, I was always brought up to believe that, you know, Arkwright was the chap who was responsible for the textile revolution and Newcomer for, for steam and Stevenson for railways. Reading your book, it's pretty obvious that actually there are lots of people involved in lots of ways. And I think the most striking example in your book is, is Edison. We all think that Edison, well, certainly here in America, folk uh, are certain that Edison invented the light bulb. But actually, that, that wasn't really the case at all, was it? No, I think Edison innovated the light bulb. Uh, and he's quite a good example of an innovator versus an inventor because uh, he, he did this endless, relentless uh, trial and error to make sure that it was reliable and affordable. Um, he tried 6,000 different types of plant material before he settled upon Japanese bamboo for the filament of his light bulb. Um, and that's what made him so much better than the other people who had invented light bulbs. 
And the light bulb is a metaphor for innovation, if you like, for invention. But uh, actually, the remarkable thing about it is that there are 21 different people who had uh, who invented the light bulb around the same time, completely independently, as far as we can make out. Uh, here in the northeast of England, there was a guy called Joseph Swan, who ended up going into business in, with Edison in the UK because he won a, won a lawsuit against him. Um, but in Russia, there's a chap called Lodigin who invented a light bulb. Um, there's a person called Maxim. There's another person in France. There's a couple in Belgium. There's a Canadian. You know, there were people all over the world inventing light bulbs in the 1870s. Why? Why then? What's so special about then? Well, it turns out there was there was something inevitable about inventing light bulbs then. There was enough interest in electricity, in vacuums, in glass, uh, in lighting, uh, for it, it to be sort of inevitable that people would put it together and the penny would drop simultaneously. So, you know, Edison and so on could both have been run over by trams and we'd still have light bulbs. A very good common uh, sort of more easily understood modern example is the search engine, which I describe as the most useful innovation of my lifetime. I use it every day. And it, you know, if, if Google had never been founded, we'd still have search engines. Of course, it was obvious uh, in the early 90s that you were going to invent search engines. I mean, the timing of inventions is a really fascinating subject. When I came here to America six or seven weeks ago, I carried a very heavy suitcase, but it had wheels on it. 20, 30 years ago, when I would travel as a, as a, as a young man, um, I, like most people, I'd have to lug a great big suitcase. And like many people, I thought, what, what took people so long to figure out how to stick wheels on suitcases? What is it with the timing of invention? Um, well, innovation? What, 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 why do things happen yeah. when they happen? I use wheeled suitcases as the sort of canonical example of a, an invention that should have been made much earlier. Um, as you say, you know, why on earth didn't we think of putting wheels on suitcases? And then I look into the story in my book and I say, well, hang on. Actually, people did invent wheeled suitcases in the 1940s and the 1920s. There are lots of patents for wheels on suitcases and none of them really caught on. Now, why didn't they catch on? Actually, when you go back and think about it, airports and, and um, uh, train stations were much smaller places. Porters were much cheaper and more available uh, and, you know, with their carts or whatever. And the wheels you'd have had to put on a suitcase in 1940 would have been great big chunky steel things that would have weighed a lot uh, and taken up a lot of space uh, and actually probably wasn't worth it. Probably better to hire a porter to carry your bags. So I suspect that there is a nice story about the guy who first did invent uh, wheeled suitcases, going around to Samsonite and other companies and being turned down and, you know, uh, them saying, well, I don't think the world's ready for wheels or suitcases. Um, but nonetheless, I, 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 I think actually that's a story that tells you that on the whole, innovations don't come along too late. Um, they, 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 they do turn up when they're needed. Um, I, I have found one nice example of a, of a very modern in, invention that could have been invented any time in the last 2,000 years. Um, it's called a lever axe. The lever axe is an asymmetric axe that somebody in Finland or Sweden has invented. When you chop wood, it, it sort of splits the wood at the same time as, as, as chopping it. Um, it's a really neat invention and I don't see any reason why you couldn't have invented that uh, a thousand years ago. Um, but apart from that, I struggle to come up with examples of key innovations that, that should have happened 
50 years before they did. You know, Babbage tried to invent a computer in the 19th century made out of wood. Um, it's just too, too cumbersome to make that kind of thing work. You need, first of all, vacuum tubes and then uh, silicon chips to make it really work. Um, we talked a bit about the role of luck. We talked a bit about the role of individuals. Um, we talked a little bit about the timing of inventions. Um, what about what you might call anti-innovation? Why does innovation sometimes not happen? I mean, I can think of contemporary examples such as the anti-innovation movement on shale gas and, and vaping. But historically, you know, why, why didn't Arkwright appear in Northern Italy um, 300 years before he appeared in, in Northern England? Why, why didn't the steam engine, um, why didn't the Romans create the steam engine? What, what are the anti-innovation forces in society that, that, that you identify mm. in the book? I think they're really threefold and they're very powerful. I mean, the, the, the degree of antipathy to innovation is surprisingly strong. Uh, you know, look at genetic technologies today, or as you say, fracking or something, but even look at things like coffee. You know, coffee comes into Europe in the 1500s and there is a huge resistance to it and it's banned in city after city. It, the ban never works, coffee survives, but there are, huge, there are very strong attempts to get rid of it. In that case, you can see quite clearly what's happening. First of all, there's a rival business that doesn't like uh, a new um, uh, combatant in the, on the field, uh, in this case, the wine and beer industry. And there are pamphlets from the 1600s in southern France um, paid for by the wine industry, but from medical doctors in universities saying, don't touch this coffee stuff, it's going to kill you. Uh, stick to our wine instead. It's not, you know, so bought and paid for science, as it were. Um, but then the other reason that coffee gets banned is because uh, rulers don't like people gathering in coffee shops. Because when they do, they have animated conversations. And sometimes the topic of conversation is whether or not the king is doing a good job. And occasionally, the, the opinion is voiced that he's not doing a good job. And this is unacceptable. So um, to, to, to prevent fake news spreading, rulers try and ban coffee and coffee shops. Um, uh, so often it, it, opposition comes from the top, from, from government, uh, either regulating or, or simply banning things. Often it comes from rival industries. And the third source it comes from is uh, much more modern generally, and that's pressure groups, you know, the green pieces of this world trying to uh, persuade you not to adopt uh, new technologies in agriculture or whatever it is and they're just on the make I mean they're just trying to make money out of uh, uh, stirring up uh, opposition to things um, that's basically their their business model um, uh, so uh, and it can be extremely lucrative um, but it, it it just just to finish the coffee story that it culminated in the 18th century in a Swedish king being urged to ban coffee, and he did, and he had all coffee pots smashed. You know, you weren't allowed to own a coffee pot. It was ridiculous. Um, but he was actually quite, he, he was a proper Swede. He was scientific. You know, he believed in the experimental method. So he said, let's do an experiment. Let's take two um, convicted uh, murderers on death row, and we'll give one of them nothing but coffee for the next 10 years and one of them nothing but tea. And we'll see which one dies first. <laughs> and the brilliant thing about that experiment is that the doctors overseeing the trial died first. 
the tea drinker died next and the coffee drinker was the last one left alive. It's funny, you see this sort of um, anti-rational rationalism applied by vested interests and the sort of forces of conservatism who regard themselves as progressive today. Um, yes. I, I think one of the, the greatest metaphors, as, as, as you said earlier, for invention is the light bulb. And it's a wonderful story, isn't there, about how light bulb regulations were introduced in order to try to make sure that light bulbs were modern by making us buy fluorescent light bulbs at the precise moment when that technology itself was made redundant. Um, and, and to me, that wonderfully illustrates the problem of trying to do innovation and control innovation by design. Could you elaborate? Absolutely. I think, I think this is a very, very nice example of, of what happened. Around 10 years ago, all across the Western world, certainly in, in Europe, but I think also in America, uh, governments decided to outlaw incandescent light bulbs. Um, they started off by sort of not calling it a ban, but it, it pretty well became a ban everywhere. Uh, and they did so basically because they'd been lobbied by Philips in Europe, um, General Electric and other firms uh, in the US. And uh, they had said, they saw an opportunity to stop, to stop us all, to, to make us all buy new, new, new light bulbs that were seven, eight times as expensive. They said they were gonna last longer. These were compact fluorescent light bulbs replacing incandescents. Um, and they said they were gonna use less electricity for the same amount of light. They do use less electricity, but they have other maddening habits, like they take too long to warm up, the, the, the glow they give is not the right colour. Um, they're quite dangerous if you break one. It's basically a toxic spill in your living room of mercury. So you're supposed to uh, don a hazard suit and not use your living room for two weeks or something. You know, <laughs> it's ridiculous. But they were a terrible technology, and we all hated them. And they'd been forced on us by governments because companies were using the excuse of climate change to lobby for um, a, a technology. But as you say, waiting in the wings was a much better technology than either incandescence or compact fluorescence, which is the light emitting diode, the LED lighting, which had just got to the point where it could produce really good white light, uses far less electricity than either of the other technologies, doesn't need to warm up, uh, the bulbs last forever, and we're all now, I mean, I can't remember when I last replaced a bulb in my house, it's, you know, years. And um, uh, so I suspect that that government intervention not only cost consumers a lot of money, it also probably delayed a shift to a more efficient technology, to an innovation. So governments would have been better to let the market find that solution. Uh, than to try and impose an immature and uh, unsuccessful technology on the population. Now, one of the things that I constantly hear, both here in America and in Britain, is that you know, governments need to um, drive innovation. And, you know, I was listening to a British minister the other day, rather depressingly, talking about the size of the R&D budget. Um, governments aren't really good at initiating innovation, are they? I mean, the best they can do is create the circumstances and the conditions in which innovation happens. Um, R&D budgets, do they correlate with innovation or not? No, uh, Terence Keeley has written very interestingly about this, and, and he finds that um, the amount of R&D a country is spending does correlate with the amount of innovation it gets. But whether that spending is in the private sector or the public sector really matters. 
private sector spending on R&D uh, actually produces a lot of innovation. Public sector spending on R&D tends not to. It tends to end up producing blue sky science, which is very interesting and very good and important part of our culture, but it's, it doesn't tend to lead to the same amount of innovation. And people say, well, come on, look at DARPA or, um, uh, you know, the defense spending in California that led to things like GPS and all this kind of thing. Surely you've got to admit that that, that is. Um, and yes, if you're going to throw vast sums of money at scientists and engineers, the chances are some of it's going to result in some innovation. And if governments are going to take 40% um, of my money off me, I'd rather they put some of that into innovation than than none of it, if you see what I mean. Yeah. But actually, the track record is very poor. Um, the track record of, of governments in being able to cause the innovations they want to happen uh, is, is truly poor. The internet comes out of DARPA, but you show me a version of the world in the 1980s where computers are starting to get networked, where somebody doesn't come up with the internet. And you show me how the innovation, as opposed to the invention of the internet, um, was done by government. It wasn't. It was done by all of us. You know, it was, it was a very bottom-up democratic thing that people began to improve the, the internet with little innovations all through, through society. Um, so, um, sure, government can invent things. It invented nuclear weapons, for a start. Although even there, they relied heavily on some private sector contractors to do a lot of the work in Tennessee and in uh, California and places. Um, so um, I think it's, it's a huge mistake that is being made at the moment in Britain, but also to some extent in America. I mean, Adam Teer is very interesting on this. Uh, that the, there has been a tendency to see the need for an industrial strategy on innovation. And I think the root of it is that people are misreading China. They're looking at China and saying that's a very uh, autocratic, centralized, uh, dictatorial system, and it's very innovative. So they must, that must be where it comes from. Just like they misread Japan. They used to go around saying, well, Japan has MITI and it's driving this industrial strategy, and that's why it's inventing, you know, um, uh, cameras and uh, um, uh, Sony um, listening devices and so on. And um, actually, that was a misreading of Japan. Most of the R&D was happening in the private sector, very little government R&D at that time. And it's a misreading of China, because what China actually did was it liberated the economy while not liberating society. So, you know, there's no political liberation in China, but there was a considerable degree of economic liberalization. If you wanted to start a business or invent a, a gadget, you were basically free to do so. Uh, and you, you, you ran into very few of the petty bureaucratic obstacles that you would run into in the West. Now, I think China has unlearned that lesson and is now becoming an economically dirigiste society, and that will will cause it to, to, to lose its innovation edge in the current period. It, it's fascinating because if we were having this conversation in America 40 years ago, there was a great fear that America was in a state of decline and was going to be eclipsed by Japan. And Japan, people said, was the coming country. Um, actually, if you remind people of that, they, they, they rather laugh at the idea. I mean, Japan is, is, is yep. in a bit of an economic pickle, to put it mildly. Is it perhaps the case that China today is in a similar position. It, it, it's able to, to grow by imitation. It's able to grow by mixing 
capita and, and concrete and capital. But unless it gets innovation right, actually China could just become a, a big version of Japan. And in you know, 30, 40 years time, it'll still be America. If America keeps its innovation intact, it'll still be America that's setting the agenda rather than China. Do you think there's a, a strong possibility of that? I'm a little less optimistic than that because I'm a little less optimistic about America um, for a start. Uh, I think the, the conditions of competition between the states in terms of policies for entrepreneurs and things like that are not as good as they were. It's much too uniform now, America. It's much more like an empire, much less, less like a federation. Um, but also because I think China is innovative. I don't think it's just copying anymore. If you look at what they're doing with, you know, the cashless society and that kind of stuff, it's, it's way ahead of what we're doing in the West. But uh, I do think that they that under Xi Jinping, it's a very different regime from what, what we had over most of the last 40 years. And it really is trying to tell people what they should invent, what they should, um, what businesses they should start. And look at the, you know, look at the um, crackdown on Jack Ma um, for criticizing uh, the stock market or whatever it was uh, the other day. It's, it, you know, the freedom to be a, an entrepreneur in China has gone. And that will crush it. I see a very close parallel albeit over a shorter period, between the Song Dynasty and Ming Dynasty change and, and what happened today. Song Dynasty was very decentralized, very devolved, a lot of freedom for entrepreneurs and merchants, um, a big army to defend the, 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 the boundaries and so on. But otherwise, merchants were free to trade, they were free to travel, they could do what they want. By the time of the Ming Dynasty, particularly the first two Ming emperors, you get a a tremendously dirigiste system in which every merchant must report his inventory to a mandarin, um, in which you can't travel outside your village without a permit, uh, in which uh, the only people allowed to do foreign trade are Zheng He, you know, that guy with the enormous ship who went around the world with collecting giraffes from Africa, <laughs> things, which everyone thinks of as a sort of, I can't hear you, no. Carry on, carry on. Um, we, we, everybody thinks of that as a sort of rather amazing moment of, you know, China sends this thing, huge ship, ships around the world. Actually, it's a very good example of trying to do trade by government doing it. You end up with gigantism and inefficiency. And, and after it, they ban trade. They just simply ban foreign trade. That's fascinating. I, I hadn't thought of the period of China's history after Deng Xiaoping for 40 years as being like the song. And... The current regime being like a reversion to the Ming. That's a, a fascinating thought. Um, I, I just want to finish off, if I may, by talking a little bit about Mississippi, because Mississippi has four very good universities that do a huge amount of research. Right. And it's also got the Stennis um, NASA Space Center, which does a huge amount. Yes. Of it. In other words, it's got the critical mass. It's got the people and the know-how. It also, I think, has two big disadvantages. It, it has a a regulatory regime, which means that a venture capitalist wanting to invest here has every kind of disincentive to, to want to put money into good ideas in any of those universities. And, and quite often good ideas tend to move to Texas or, or Tennessee to be developed there. So what, what do you think we could do to try to make sure that innovation happened here in Mississippi, not in neighboring states? Do you think there are particular things we could do to encourage permissionless innovation? Yes, I do. I think um, 
uh, for a start, it, it, as you say, it's all about incentives. And if you, if it, it, it's relatively easy to, to find what it is that Texas is doing now, California used to do to attract entrepreneurs. It's things like share structure rules, um, taxation uh, incentives, uh, and so on. Um, uh, but then on the regulatory side, for me, the big theme is speed of decisions. Mm -hmm. If you have a regulator that gives you quick decisions, yes or no, as to whether you can build something, whether you can market something, et cetera, et cetera, um, uh, then you're off to the races. Uh, it, it doesn't, it, it's not, the problem is in this modern world is not that regulators say no, they take an age to say yes. So for example, genetically modified crops in the European Union um, were never banned, but BASF took eight years to get a decision out of the European Commission on one potato. Um, uh, you know, that's how you kill innovation. So, and if you look at what Britain did just recently with respect to approving vaccines, um, its medicines and healthcare regulatory agency decided to, to, to do work streams in parallel in order to be able to reach the approval of a vaccine quicker, but just as safely. Um, and it, it gave us an enormous head start on, in, in the vaccination uh, uh, story. Um, that, that's the, the big lesson of the pandemic for me is to speed up decision-making. Uh, you know, sorry, yeah. That's exactly what's inspired us to introduce a bill here in the state capital here in Mississippi. It's called the Sandbox Bill. And we basically swiped a good idea from Utah and the idea behind this is that if you've got an innovation and you want to try and see if it works, normal compliance rules are not going to apply to you until you get to the stage where you're ready to take it to market. So that if, if you're a farmer with a driverless tractor here in Mississippi, you shouldn't have to go through all the compliance, which frankly puts you off doing anything. The idea is go ahead, do it. So long as you're not selling it to customers, do it without permission and only come and seek permission once you know it works. And I, I, I think if this bill goes through, it, it's gonna be fairly key. You talked about getting timely decisions. What we're trying to do is actually say, yeah, you don't need a decision at all until you're sure that it works. Um, that's, that's a really good idea because trial and error is such a huge part of this. And actually the, the, the big theme of innovation is learning by doing, is by getting stuff into the market. You know, the reason we can't invent new new forms of nuclear power is because it takes a billion dollars to get a new design approved and then you're not allowed to change it. You know, you can't say, hang on, halfway through the building, actually we should do it a different way. You've got to be able to have the flexibility to put out a product in, a, in some kind of test way and find that, oh, I've got it all wrong. The customer doesn't want it green, they want it red, you know, and then you go back and make the red one and then you give it to the customers and they say, oh, actually they want it lightweight, not heavy. I didn't realize that, you know, whatever. You know, that's... And, and consumer tested um, uh, innovation is is, uh, is is the great theme. I, I hope that our sandbox bill here in Mississippi is going to be a success in Mississippi and an example to, 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 to other states, because if word gets out there that you can come to Mississippi and you can innovate and you get a sort of regulatory holiday to suss out whether it works. And if we get rid of things like the ridiculous regime at the moment we have where, you know, um, non-tangible assets like intellectual property are taxable. If we can make it a much more tax-friendly place to come to try things, to make mistakes, 
Um, and, you know, um, I, I think that 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 will really, really help the state. I think you're dead right. And uh, Brink Lindsay and Steve Tellers had a very good book called The Captured Economy about how things like occupational licensing and intellectual property have been used to effectively create barriers to entry. And the more you can tackle that, the better, too. But, you know, above all, use the state as a laboratory to do things differently from neighboring states. Don't, don't fall into the habit of trying to make everything the same everywhere. There's a theme there that you and I were involved in for um, quite a few years, particularly you. Um, you know, what, what the European Union tries to do to make everything the same everywhere is very inimical to innovation. Be small and be nimble and be fast. Yeah, yeah. Um, Matt, it has been a great privilege talking to you. And I hope when this wretched COVID situation is resolved, you will be coming to America. And I hope when you do come to America, you find the time to come to Mississippi because I tell you, you will get a huge audience here. You are, you're, you're well known, you're, you're, your books are well read here and we would really, really love to host you here when you're able to. Well, I might take you up on that because I'm planning a trip to Texas in November and uh, it's not very far away. Uh, if you're going to Texas, why get it? You've got to come here. We are the center of the universe. Um, and uh, I, I do have in-laws in, I have, in, I have a mother-in-law in Texas. So that's the, the first right. port of call. But after that- um, well, If you're yeah. looking for an escape, you're very welcome. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much. Great, Douglas, lovely to talk to you. And 